All right. Welcome to episode eight of The Plan. The Plan is our sermon series that we're going through this school year that focuses on the story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, the entire story of Scripture that is uh, also our story. And we're focusing on the plot points that unite the whole thing together because that is where we find our place in God's story. Once we understand what the whole story is, we know that we have a role in that and we can also invite others into that story. And what we found as we've been studying through Genesis and the first half of Exodus is that the story of the Bible is God's plan to establish a place full of people who live out their purpose in his presence. At every stage in the Bible, from beginning to end, this is what God is working through. And so we saw when he created the world in Genesis 1, he created the universe, he put his people there, he put human beings there, and called them to rule on his behalf. And then on the seventh day, he filled the earth with his presence. He came to live with them, and that was the design. And then human beings messed it up. And we saw in the garden in Genesis 3 that they were separated from God. His presence was especially there in the garden, and they were exiled. And ever since, we've been kind of apart from God's presence. But then uh, in Genesis 12, God chooses one family to put in one place to follow through to, and calls them to a special purpose. And he promises that he will be their God. Now, that's the part that we're still missing is the way that God's presence is going to be with his people. But we've seen how he has chosen to focus in on one group and establish the plan through them. And somehow that is going to bless the rest of the world and bring the plan to the rest of humanity. And last week, we reach this turning point where Moses is on the mountain of God and he discovers God's presence, or rather God reveals his presence to Moses. And, and he says, go and bring the Israelites out and come back to this mountain because this is where God has chosen to put his presence. And so it's kind of like in the Chronicles of Narnia that Aslan's on the move again. God is here and there's an opportunity for him to live with his people again. And so God sends Moses to Egypt and he frees the Israelites and brings them to Mount Sinai. And that's where we left off the story last week, that the Israelites are at the base of Mount Sinai, and God is at the top, and Moses goes up to meet with God. And so we see we're on the verge of this reconciliation that we've been looking for since Genesis 3. They are so close. Humanity and God are so close together. And we have a chance to have the plan restored for the first time since Eden. So this is where we're going to pick up the story in the exact same passage where we left off, and I'm going to read the beginning of Exodus 19, and I want you to use this passage to find your coordinates. Remember, we're looking for four things to set up the story. People, who is the story about? Place, where is their home? Presence, how can they meet with God? And purpose, uh, what does God tell them to do? Those are the four parts of the story, the four coordinates that we find so that we can then read the rest of the story and track with the plan, okay? So, we're going to read Genesis 19, or Exodus 19, 1 through 6. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, And what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. 
All right, so this passage sets, sets the stage for what's going to happen really through the next book and a half. So let's start with people. Who is the story about? It's about Moses and the Israelites. Same people as, as last week. So the Israelites are the people of God. He is working through the whole body of people. But God has also chosen Moses for this special role where Moses represents the Israelites to God and then he represents God to the Israelites. So he is this kind of common point, this point of overlap. He goes back and forth between them. And so Moses has this special role that other Israelites don't have. Okay? So it's a story about the Israelites, but it's also the story about Moses. Now, where is their home? This part isn't explicitly stated in, the story, in this specific passage, but we should know this pretty well by now. Their, where is their home? Where are they supposed to end up? The promised land. They are still on their journey to the promised land. Um, Sinai was never the place they were supposed to end up. Um, this is the, you know, last week was the first time we'd really heard about it, but ultimately God has given them Canaan, and that's where they're going to go to live. Presence. How can they meet with God? They can meet with God on the mountain. However, if you continue reading into 19, you'll find that there's actually a little bit of a wrinkle with this arrangement because as you read, God starts laying down some rules for this conversation they're about to have. And rule number one is no one but Moses goes on the mountain. In fact, if anyone touches the mountain, if any animals touch the mountain, you stone them. You stone them because you're not even supposed to touch them when you execute them because nobody goes on the mountain but Moses. He actually even uh, tells Moses, like, put up barriers even so that nobody will even try to get up the mountain. Only Moses goes on the mountain. So what we can tell is this is not, everything isn't completely back to normal, right? This isn't God and Israel running to each other in slow motion in a field of daisies reunion, right? This is a, um, they're still figuring things out. And so there's complications, there's things that need to be overcome, but at least Moses now has the ability to go up on the mountain and meet with God. Now, what did God tell them to do? What did he say in that passage about what they are meant to do to be his people? He tells them to keep the covenant. Keep the covenant. Now, at this point, the only covenant we've really heard details about is the covenant with Abraham. But they are there to receive a new covenant. So God says, keep the covenant and, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, you know, and we'll move forward with the plan. Obviously, the next thing they need to do is figure out what the covenant is. So Moses goes back up the mountain and, he's, and st- God starts laying out the first section of the covenant. He's going to give it to them in chunks throughout the next three books, but he gives him the first chunk. It's a set of rules, and the first section is a set of ten rules that kind of set the stage for the whole thing. So I'm not going to read you all of them. I'm not even going to read you all the first ten, but I will read you the first two because they're clearly very important. As an example of the kinds of things that are in the covenant, God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then he goes on, he lists another eight to round out the top ten, and then he continues on and gives them more rules 
And Moses comes down and tells all of these to the uh, Israelites. But those first two are, are really important. And you can tell because God underlines them with this last passage. He just says, hey, pay attention to these two because I am a jealous God. And what he's basically telling them in this section is that how you handle this command will determine how I treat you for generations. If you get this one wrong, there will be consequences for three or four generations, 60, 80 years. Like for, for a long time, there's going to be consequences. Now, on the other hand, if you keep this, then I'll be faithful to you for a thousand generations, which, if you think about it, is actually a really long time. A thousand generations is like 20,000 years, right? You know it's only been about 175 generations since this happened? That's a long time that he's going to be faithful to them if they keep this right. So clearly, the stakes are very high on especially this part, the covenant in general, but especially this part. So their instructions are keep the covenant. For example, no idols. It's a good place to start. Just no idols, don't worship any other gods, and don't worship God through graven images. That's rules number one and two. plus all the others. So that sets the stage for us as we go into the rest of the story about we're going to see what do the Israelites do and how does God respond. So the first thing that happens is actually very promising. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Basically, they're having a feast with God. If you remember last year when we talked about this, that's what those sacrifices are. They're a feast that they're sharing with God. Moses took half of the blood and put it in the bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So, great start. God says, keep the covenant and you'll be my people. And it starts with the Israelites agreeing to the covenant. They they hear it. He reads out all the rules. God didn't have them sign a blank check or a blank contract. He read the rules and says, okay, what do you think? And they say, yes, we'll do it. We'll agree to it. That's awesome. Which is a great start. So Moses goes back up the mountain to get the next set of regulations. And the next set of regulations are actually the blueprints for the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and all the things that they're going to need to set up God's home among the Israelites because that's the goal, right? The goal isn't this, for, to have the Israelites at the bottom of the mountain and God at the top of the mountain forever. God's meaning to come down with them and go with them into Canaan. So Moses goes up to get the blueprints for God's tent that he's going to live in while he's with the Israelites. And then things, and, and things go great for Moses. He and God are having a conversation. But at the base of the mountain with the Israelites, things go, take a turn. He's there for 40 days. And when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods. Pause. This word is actually Elohim, which could either mean gods or the God of gods. And for reasons that we'll see in a second, it seems to me that this should be translated as a god. Come make us a God who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then then they said, This is your God, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. 
When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. So we'll get into in a second what, what's really going on with why the calf. But ultimately, the first thing you should notice is that they agreed to the covenant and then they immediately broke it. First thing, the first action they take after agreeing to it in the story is they broke it. Now, we often misunderstand how they broke it because we think that they chose another god, like other gods to worship, and they thought, oh, forget about Yahweh, we're going to go worship these other gods like Baal or Ra or something else. It's not actually what happened. First of all, it's one god because it's one calf, and also because when they have the party, the party is dedicated to Yahweh. So they're not worshiping a different god. They're worshiping Yahweh through the golden calf. Now, why are they worshiping God through a golden calf? Well, the golden calf actually has a a significance in these ancient cultures that you find repeated over and over again. Actually, here's some pictures of various gods depicted above bulls or calves. See, the idea was, remember, the gods in these days were understood as being distant and unloving and didn't care about people, so you needed to coax them down right? So remember we talked about how the Tower of Babel was meant to bring God down like he needed a ladder to get down. Like if they made it easy for him, he might be more willing to come down. Well, here the idea is that if you want God to go where you want him to go, you make for him the most magnificent steed you can that he can't resist coming down to ride. And so they would use animals especially golden animals, to serve as a ride for the presence of the God. And so as they lead the calf around, they assume the God is above the calf riding it because who could resist such a magnificent statue to ride? Who could resist riding something like this? And so the idea, they're getting impatient with with, with God coming down, but that's still the goal. Reuniting humanity and God is still the goal. And so they decide, you know, Moses is taking too long. Maybe he's died up there. Maybe it's not working. We'll bring him down ourselves. We will coax God down with this amazing golden calf. And so when they have this festival, it's because they believe they have brought God down themselves. So they they actually want to do the thing God has promised to do, but they're doing it their own way, on their own timeline. And the first red flag they should have seen was the fact that they had to break God's commandments to do it. Right? They had to break rule two in order to do this. That should have been the red flag. And it's amazing how often God's people will do something in God's name and miss the red flag that they're actually breaking one of his commands when they do it. We, We are actually... It's not uncommon for us to miss that red flag, that we're violating what the Bible, what God tells us to do, and in God's name. So this is not a great position to be in. Remember, God said there are high stakes in following this command or not. And so the scene changes, and we move up to see what's happening on the mountain between God and Moses. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people whom you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, this is your God, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. So what is God doing here? 
It seems like he's pa- passing judgment. He's deciding what he's doing. He's going to destroy these people, which we should kind of be ready for. Like we've seen people break the plan before, and God responds to it by taking one action or another. And so it makes sense that God would respond to what they've done. But there's a very important phrase in here that you can't lose sight of. That phrase is, leave me alone. Why does God say, leave me alone? Does Moses have the ability to stop him? Does God need Moses' permission to do whatever he wants to do? He doesn't. And so it's a very interesting phrase, and we're going to see Moses picks up on it. When he says, now leave me alone, he's actually inviting Moses into the decision-making process. That's what's happening here is God invited Moses into his decision-making process. Why? Because God is in covenant with the Israelites. God is in partnership with the Israelites. And God takes that seriously even when the Israelites don't. Moses is not entitled to have a say in what God is doing, but God's goal is to be partnering with humanity, and he has made a covenant with the Israelites, and Moses is still in good standing. Moses has been on the mountain the whole time. And so God actually invites Moses into this decision-making process and gives him an opportunity By saying, now leave me alone, he's giving Moses the the ability to intervene and and ask Moses to do something different. He could have just said, hey, Moses, by the way, um, all those Israelites, they made a golden calf, so I've wiped them out. They're already dead, and we're going to start again with you. He could have just informed Moses of what he had done, but instead he brings Moses in. And so now we're looking to see how Moses is going to respond, because the story of the golden calf is actually about Moses. It's actually about the relationship between Moses and God. So what does Moses do with this? Because remember, he has no, um, he is not on the hook. He can wash his hands of the whole thing. He can tell the people, he can tell God, yeah, sure, wipe them out, start with me again, that'd be great. I've been having a hard time with them anyway. So what is Moses going to do? Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought up out of Egypt with a great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains, wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. So Moses has this opportunity, and how does he use it? He uses it to intervene. He uses it to ask God not to destroy them. So Moses used his position with God to intervene for Israel. And it says, in that section, it says God relented of the disaster he was going to, to uh, the way he was going to de- destroy the Israelites. That doesn't end the story. That just means he's decided not to wipe them out this second. He's like, okay, we'll talk. Okay? So Moses goes down to, talk, to, stop, to put a stop to the party. And, but the thing isn't settled. He still has to go back and talk to God to sort this thing out. How many times do you think he has to talk to God in order to sort this out? I, anybody remember from last week? Remember a connection? Last week, we, had, we focused on a conversation where God calls Moses at the burning bush, and Moses objects to God five times. Five times he tells God, send someone else, I can't do it, here's a reason why, here's, and he, he resists five times. How many th- times do you think he is going to have to argue with God until God uh, agrees to what Moses is asking? Five times. It's an interesting connection. That now Moses, as he steps in as an intercessor, is going to have to argue with God five times until they reach an agreement. So he goes down and he, he puts an end to the party, Moses does, and then he tells them, or the next day he said to the people, you have committed a great sin. 
but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses is hoping to somehow wash away their sin, somehow cover it up, somehow get rid of it, get it out from between Israel and God. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves a God of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. Okay, this is a gamble. It's a bold move. Basically, Moses says, Hey, I I know I'm innocent, but if you're going to get rid of them, get rid of me too. I'm with them. It's a package deal. He's actually standing in between God and Israel and saying, If you're going to get them, you've got to go through me which is a very bold move. It's a risky move. And the Lord said to Moses, oh, so, so God basically says, yeah, I'm not going to kill someone who's innocent. I'm going to punish someone who's innocent over this. So instead, God makes kind of a counteroffer. He, he, he lessens his punishment. Instead, he says, leave this place, you and the people you brought out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promise on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. Moses, oh, let's pause there. Okay, so if you've been tracking with, if you, if you've been tracking with the plan, you realize what, how big of a deal this is because God's relationship with Israel has been humanity's best hope to be reunited with God. And they came so close, right? And then the Israelites mess it up and God says, God's going to destroy them. Moses asked him not to. So God says, all right, here's my next offer. I will, lead, I will send you away. I'll even lead you through an angel to the promised land, but I'm not going with you. I'm going to stay here because this, this isn't working out. This partnership, it's not me, it's you, but this is not working out. So, and I don't want to destroy you, so I'll send you and you'll get your land flowing with milk and honey, but I'm going to stay here. Which is a tragedy if that's what ends up happening, right? Because the whole hope of this is that God and humanity are going to be brought back into community, into relationship. And so to lose that connection is, is horrible. So Moses is, this is not the arrangement Moses wants. So Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. Moses says, hold on, wait a minute. If you stay here, how am I supposed to do this? Like we've we've really well established, I can't do this on my own. if, if If we're clear on one thing, it's that Moses can't run this show alone. So how am I supposed to do this without you? So like, teach me. Tell me, how, are you gonna, how, how am I going to get there without you? Show me, because this was not the deal. And God makes another counter proposal, another proposal. He says, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Now, here is a place, one of the most frustrating things about the English language, is we only have one second person pronoun, you. You can't tell if it's singular or plural. In this case, it's singular. Who is God going to go with? Not the Israelites. Moses. He says, fine, you're right. You need me, so I will go with you, and I will take care of you, but I'm not doing the whole thing with the Israelites. That's over. But I, I, you're right. I did promise to help you, so I will go with you. 
This is not enough for Moses either. So Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? See, this is where Moses shows that he gets it. He understands the point of the plan because the point of the plan is not just for Israel to get its own land. It's not just for one more group of people to migrate to another place and conquer it and rule over it and just be some other, just another nation. That's not the point. That's not going to change anything. What will change things is if God is with them because then the relationship between God and that nation will reveal God to the world. That's the plan, is for God's relationship with Israel to reveal him to the rest of the world, to show them his plan for humanity. He says, if you don't go with us, then what's the point? What's, what makes us different from any other nation? Like, there's, don't even bother if you're not coming with, because it doesn't mean anything. Which shows that Moses understands God's project. And so now, after the fifth time that Moses has intervened and argued with God, God says, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. I will do the thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. And this tells us something scandalous about what this story is is teaching, which is what God does here is God forgave the Israelites. Why? Because Moses asked him to. See, what happens here is God forgives them clean. There are really no consequences now. Like, he's, he's restoring the entire plan. He's going to go through with everything he promised them. He gives it all back. Why? Because Moses asked him to. Because the person that he had invited into covenant with him asked. It mattered what Moses did in that conversation. And that is a crazy notion that it matters what God's human partners ask, that there are things that God does because his human partners have asked him to do it. But that's not the whole story, because there's one more side to this, what, why God forgives his people. Because Moses then says, now show me your glory. It's like, all right, so you, you say you're going to go with us. Can I, can I see that you're going to go with us? Can you show me your glory so I know who you are, so I know that you're going to go with us? And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So God says, yes, I will show you my glory. I will tell you my name. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. You remember who God told Moses he was at the burning bush. He said, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. And in this moment, one of the most important passages in the Old Testament, certainly the most requoted passage in the Old Testament, this is, he tells God who he will, he tells Moses who he will be, who he is being. This is a, a repeated formula for who God is. He is gracious. That means he gives people better than they deserve. He is merciful. He punishes less than they deserve. He is slow to anger. It takes him longer to get angry than you think. 
And he is full of loyal love. He is more loyal to you than you expect. That's who he is. And because of that, he is a God who forgives. Now, he's not a pushover. He also punishes evil. But what he's revealing to Moses is that on the one hand, yes, I forgave them because you asked me to. But also God forgave the Israelites because that's the kind of God he is. Moses was not asking God for something out of God's character. God did not begrudgingly give Moses what he asked for. God's goal all along was to reach this point where Moses and God were on the same page and wanted the same thing. So that's the other side of what we see is that God forgave because Moses asked, but he also forgave because what Moses asked is what he wanted to do, what it was in his character to do. So Moses was asking God to do the thing that he already wanted to do. And when you realize that that's what Moses is doing, because ultimately this story is really more about Moses, it helps you understand this interesting little fact that happens at the end of this conversation. Moses, uh, God, so Moses, he got so angry when he saw what the Israelites were doing that he broke the Ten Commandments. So in this conversation, God gives him a new copy of the Ten Commandments, and he comes back down to tell the Israelites the results of his intercession with God. And this is what we find. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him. He gave them the commands of the Lord that the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. So Moses comes down from trying to talk God out of killing them all, and he's glowing, and they're terrified of it. But why is Moses glowing? He has been on the mountain with God before. He has been on the mountain for 40 days with God before. Why is he glowing this time? What that indicates is that there is some kind, in some way, Moses has reached the pinnacle of what he is called to do who he is called to be, that there is this such an intense connection between him and God that he is now reflecting God's glory when he comes down. He's absorbed God's glory into him, and it's shining out, which tells us that when whatever Moses did on that mountain, that was, that was the pinnacle of what he was supposed to be doing. And what was he doing? He was interceding for others. He was, he was interceding for others, and he was asking God to do exactly the kind of thing that God wanted to do himself. So by interceding for Israel, Moses figuratively and literally reflected God's character. This is the goal for God in his partnership with human beings, is to have human beings who want the same things that he wants, who care about the same things that he cares about who react to situations in the way he reacts to situations. It would have been so easy for Moses to say, hey, you know, they messed up, it's on them. Go ahead, wipe them out, we'll start over. Hopefully my kids will do better. He could have done that very easily. But Moses stepped in between God and these people that infuriated him for the sake of protecting them, for the sake of of getting them restored with God. And that is exactly what God wanted him to do. That is exactly what God wanted with Israel was for them to be restored. And so what we see, this is the story of Moses reaching the pinnacle of his calling as the person that goes between Israel and God. And he is, he is coming down reflecting God's glory. Now, this doesn't mean he's perfect. That glow fades 
And there will be moments when he fails in this mission. He, is, he has not become perfect for all time. There is still a need for someone else who can do that, who will have their own experience of glowing on a mountaintop, right, that will connect with this story. But in this moment, he did exactly what he was called to do. And this is where I think we can learn for our time today, for what it means for us to be Christians today. Because remember, we are part of the same story, and we are interacting with the same God. So the first thing that we learn from this story, remembering that we live with the same God, is our God is exactly who this story says he is, exactly who the Old Testament repeatedly says he is. He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in loyal love. This is so important because so often what we are told is that the Old Testament tells a story of a harsh God, an angry God who is eager to destroy, who is the opposite of all of these things. And yet over and over again, throughout the rest of the story of the Old Testament, these attributes are going to be repeated. As this is who God is. And sometimes we get pulled away from this. If you take a class on theology proper, meaning the study of God, and you talk about the attributes of God, what you end up with are mainly a bunch of Greek words about what God can do. About his omniscience, his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his immutability, his, you know, all, all those terms. But when, when God's people talked about who he was, they talked about the fact that he is generous, that he is merciful, that he gets angry slower than you expect, that he is full of more love than you can understand, that he forgives, and also that he's just. And so as, as you Listen for what God is saying to you today. As you are considering your relationship with God, remember that this is the God who calls you into relationship. This is the God who wants to know you. This is the God you are called to know. Not the angry God who just wants to swat everybody who puts a toe out of line, but a God who is eager to love you and forgive you, and who, but who is still just and cares about the way his world is run. What this also teaches us is that those who are in covenant with God, what that means, being in covenant with God, is having a seat in the decision-making process. That when God calls people into covenant, he honors that. In fact, it's his idea. So he likes being in covenant with people, and he honors that, and that gives those people who are in covenant with God a seat at that decision-making process. Their prayers matter. Doesn't mean they get everything they want, because it's still God in charge. But when God calls people into covenant, he honors that, and that makes a difference. That means they have a role ruling on his behalf. They have a spot at the table. But keeping that covenant means using that position in ways that reflect God's character. It is possible to abuse your place at the table. It is possible to abuse the responsibility that God has given you when he calls you into covenant. In fact, that happens frequently throughout the story of the Old Testament when God's people try to use what he's given them in the wrong ways. And they try to follow their own plans and their own timelines. So our goal, when a person in covenant with God ultimately wants to look like Moses did on that mountain ultimately wants to pursue who Moses was on that mountain. That idea of wanting what God wants, of doing what God does, of reflecting his character into the world, that's what we're called to. That's what a person who rules on another's behalf does, right? 
If you're an ambassador for someone, you want to say exactly what that authority tells you to say. You want to be able to speak for them and not not misspeak. I've been reading a book recently about Pearl Harbor and conversations between the Secretary of State and the Japanese ambassador, and there's moments where the Japanese ambassador feels differently from the Japanese government, you can tell, and he, he doesn't like the position he's in. Um, so there's, there's tension, and in that case, obviously, he's representing the government. You don't. The point is, when we are God's ambassadors, the goal is for us to be able to represent him accurately, for not to be a tension between what we're saying and who we're speaking for right? That's our goal, to reflect God's image that clearly when we are in covenant with God. And so that leads us to the question, when are we in covenant with God? Because this covenant that we've been talking about with Moses, it's done, it's broken, it's gone. We're certainly not in it. So what hope does that give to us? Well, here's the spoiler. Here's where we jump forward in the story. Because there comes a moment when Jesus Christ opens up a new covenant and he invites his people into a new covenant at the Last Supper. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You hear the echo of the moment when the Israelites accepted the covenant, that callback that Jesus is making. That's because he's speaking to these, these, his Jewish followers who are raised on that kind of stuff, and they understand what is happening, that Jesus is inviting them into a new partnership, into a new opportunity. Jesus invites us into a new covenant, which is a new chance to rule on God's behalf. And the difference is, and Jesus really lays this out in the Gospel of John, there is a difference now because not only does he forgive our sins, he intercedes just like Moses did, but also he sends the Holy Spirit that can transform us and actually make it so we have a better hope of participating in the covenant than the Israelites did. That as God transforms us, we are able to be the people he has called us to be. Also in that conversation, Jesus talks about how he says, he says, anything you ask in my name, God will do. He's talking about this same relationship, this authority, because doing, asking for something in Jesus' name means you're asking for the kinds of things that Jesus wants. It doesn't mean that you said in Jesus' name, amen, as an incantation to get what you want. It means that you asked for the things that Jesus would ask for. And when we get to that place, God answers our prayers. God does what we ask when it is in his name. Jesus is laying out this exact same relationship, and that means that as Christians, when we come to God, he offers us that same same kind of covenant, that partnership, where we can be his people, fulfilling his purpose, and he gives us a seat at the table, where our prayers matter because God cares what we pray. He cares what we have to say. And also, we have that responsibility of representing God to those around us. And so, as, when we're invited to the table, when we're invited into partnership with God, that's what it means. That's what we take on. We take on this amazing gift from God, the, the Holy Spirit to indwell in us and to transform us, and this authority to, to speak on God's behalf and a responsibility to speak on God's behalf. It's open to every one of us. And it's an amazing privilege. 
And so as we close, I'd ask you to consider where are you in this partnership with God? What does your next step look like? Maybe you haven't taken any steps into partnership with God. Maybe you are not, uh, you haven't given your life to him. In that case, today is the best day for you to give your life to Jesus, to enter into that partnership and to receive that transformation. Today is the best day to make that decision. And if that's where you're at, we encourage you to come down during our final song um, to talk to one of the ministers afterward. If you're online, you can contact the church or you can talk to a Christian that you trust. We love to talk you through committing your life to Jesus. If you're looking to connect with a church home, to be part of a, a community of Christians, then I encourage you to sign up for our Connect class. On the first Sunday of every month, we have a Connect class that's uh, 1230 to 2, so next Sunday, uh, when we talk about who our church is, what we do, and how you can be a part of it. And you can check the box on your, con- on your Connect card to let us know that you'd like to be a part of that. But God also calls us in, not just to, to, attend part of a congrega- to, to attend a congregation, but also to go deeper into relationship with others and to support each other. And so if you want to be a part of a small group, that's what those small groups do. We encourage you to check that box on your Connect card if that's the next step that God is calling you to. And ultimately, God calls us to serve him to help others. And so if that's the next step for you, then we encourage you to check that box on your Connect card and because we have plenty of opportunities for you to serve God through our congregation. So I'd ask you to consider what the next step is for you as we stand and sing our final song.